0: Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, And are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word once again this night, I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts by your spirit to receive it, to receive this glorious truth regarding Your Son, Jesus Christ, His preeminence, His divinity, His power, His creation, His rule over all things. And not only that, but that we would further and more deeply understand Your gospel by which we are reconciled to You. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'll begin with a question. What is something that Muslims, Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian theological liberals, and agnostics, what do they all have in common, aside from being false views, false religions? Well, there's other things besides the fact that they are false. They all have certain religious beliefs, even the agnostics, they're They've kind of given up on what true religious beliefs are, but they at least leave open the possibility that such a thing could exist. But what makes all these beliefs false and what binds all of these groups I listed together? They all believe somehow some way in Jesus. But the devil, as they say, is in the details. Agnostics, even some atheists, they believe that Jesus lived on the earth around the first century. Some even go so far as to say that Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a good man, a general nice guy. Now, Muslims believe that Jesus existed, that he was a great prophet, perhaps the greatest of prophets, preparing the way for the coming of Muhammad, the final prophet, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a God, but a lesser God, created by God the Father, retreading the old ancient church heresy of Arianism. Latter day Saints believe that Jesus existed. They believe that he was a God, but distinct from God the Heavenly Father, and just one of the infinite number of gods that might result from obedience to Heavenly Father. For after all, in their view, the Heavenly Father was once a man who obeyed his way into being God. So like I said, all these groups believe in Jesus. They believe something about Jesus. But the devil is in the details. Everyone I describe believes something about him. At the minimum, his existence. They have certain doctrines, certain beliefs built around Jesus. They even believe some things about Jesus. That are true. Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a prophet in that he did bring the revelation of God. In fact, he was the prophet that Moses saw in his day. But all of these groups I mentioned, they're missing or adding something that places them outside of the truth, that places them outside of the Christian faith. The universal Christian belief Concerning the Son of God, concerning Jesus Christ, we see it in the second part of the Nicene Creed. I'm going to read part of that for you. So this is the church affirming what it believes. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. So this is one of the unifying threads of the true church in all places and all times. And yet it is often objected, creeds are just tradition and dead orthodoxy. Why should we believe creeds? They're man-made. We should just believe the Bible. Well, of the groups I listed above, in addition to believing in Jesus in some way, some of them also believe in the Bible, or at least claim to believe in the Bible. But from the Bible, they draw completely different and erroneous conclusions. So how do we handle this issue? How do we handle this situation where we have so many groups that believe so many things about Jesus? Do we throw up our hands with the skepticism of our age and say, well, I guess we just can't really know for sure? No. We believe God's word to be true. We believe our creeds and confessions are accurate biblical statements. And we can prove these truths about Jesus from Scripture. And this text in Colossians tonight presents us with a clear case That Jesus is not merely a prophet, or a teacher, or a nice guy, but Jesus is God. Furthermore, it teaches us certain implications that this reality should have on us, and have on the world around us. So I want to look at this text tonight in three points. First, Christ's preeminence. This is what we see in verses 15 through 18. Second, Christ's peace. We see this in verse 19 through the first part of verse 21. And then third and finally, Christ's presentation. We see that in the rest of verse 21 on through verse 23. So first we are going to look at Christ's preeminence. So verse 15 introduces Christ to us as the image of the invisible God. We can see in the context, picking up from where we were this morning, that this passage is continuing to describe the work of Christ. It is continuing to describe the Son of God. Now, when we see Christ as the image of God, it's a statement that if we're familiar with this language of the image of God, we can kind of just gloss over it and not think too much about it. But these few words are actually loaded with a lot of significance, What does it mean to be an image of something? We live in an age where we have the technology and the ability to take and make photographs. And that's probably the thing we would most associate with images. Or something like videos, which are really just strings of photographs together. These are the most accurate way we have to image things now. And yet, photographs don't really move. They don't live. They don't act. So images, as we understand them, they're just copies. They're just reflections. They're a partial and imperfect representation. But the Son images the Father, images God in a way that is complete, alive, and unified more than a mere picture. Christ is the perfect image of the invisible God. Now, you might hear this talk of the image of God, and maybe your mind is drawn to Genesis chapter 1, where in verses 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he does that. Now, the plural there, the us and we that's used in that text, though in a shadowy form, it points to the Trinity. It points to a plurality in God which is also important as we're looking at the Trinitarian implications of this text in Colossians. But what we see there in Genesis 1 is God creating man in his image. Now, does this just mean that Jesus is the image of God in the same way that we are the image of God? That would require Jesus to be nothing more than a mere man. And yet, as we go on in this text in Colossians, we see... There is something much greater going on in Christ's imaging of God, something that is distinct from how we image God. For we see here in verse 15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God. As I mentioned, we often connect images with pictures. But how do you image something invisible? God, after all, cannot be seen by humans we see this in Scripture. we see this for instance in the prologue to John's Gospel, that beautiful passage about Christ as the Word who was in the beginning with God and who made all things. Very similar to some of the language we see here. John 118 oh, sorry John 1:18 tells us that no one has seen God and yet this word that was with God, And was God has made him known. So, if Jesus was only the image of God in the same way that we are, he would not be able to image an invisible God. Later in John 14 9, Jesus says that the one who has seen him has seen the Father. The invisible, unseeable Father is imaged in Christ. Christ is the very revelation of God to us. He is God, he images God to us, because he shares in God's being and essence. He is God in all the ways that God is God, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the ways that Christ is the image of God, distinct from us, is in his eternity. Now, some will object to this based on what is next. The text says that Christ was the firstborn of all creation, And so they'll say, well, see, firstborn, he was born, he was made, but not when we read that in light of verse 16, because in verse 16, we see that Jesus was, in fact, the one who makes everything. He cannot be both created and creature, or created and creator. He is creator. So When the text says that he is firstborn, it's not talking about he was born or he was made like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the old Arians would teach. Being firstborn is a title. It is a rank. It doesn't tell us the son's origin story because the son, as mentioned earlier from the Nicene Creed, is eternal with the father, but it is telling us his title. He is firstborn in rank. As we talked about a little bit this morning, in that day, the firstborn son got special privileges. He was essentially the leader of the family that would succeed the father if the father died. The firstborn son had a position of primacy. This fits neatly with texts like Hebrews 1-2, where we read that the son was appointed heir of all things. The son inherits all that the father will bequeath to him, a people for his name. And so the son holds the position, the office of firstborn, though himself being eternal and not created and not born. At least not born in the same way we are. He is eternally begotten. Now this comprehensive nature of the son's role in creation, it's detailed in the rest of verse 16. He created all things in heaven and earth. He created all things in the spiritual realm, all things in the physical realm, all things on Earth, all things in space, all the planets, all the moons, all the stars, everything. Think of the greatest builder you could possibly conceive of. Maybe in our day you could think of somebody like Elon Musk. He built major technology companies, they he started building electric cars, and now he's building spaceships and hyperloop railroads, and it seems like every week he's into something new, just building all this stuff, inventing all this stuff, and yet someone like that can't even scratch the surface of all the things that the Son of God has made, because that is everything. And all the things that Elon Musk or any other human builder is making, they're just using the sun's stuff to do it. The sun made all thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. Who's the greatest ruler you could think of? The greatest king? The greatest president? The sun made all of them and made all of the empires that they rule. As Paul writes here, all things were created through him and for him. Now, I have to ask this question, so why is Paul telling the Colossians this? Why is he so emphasizing Christ's divinity and Christ's preeminence? I mean, it's certainly true. It illuminates the glory of Christ and that all things exist for Christ's glory, but there is a more particular reason. I mentioned this morning that Paul is out to tackle the Colossian heresy, this syncretistic false teaching that is leeching into the church. The Colossian heresy was causing people to worship other powers and other things than Christ. They were worshiping thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. It seems like from what comes later in the text, some were worshiping angels. They were caught up in philosophy and asceticism, this legalistic practices which come down to forms of man worshiping himself and his own righteousness and his own works. These are always temptations. For instance, angels, they're beautiful, powerful beings, but they are created. They are subject to Christ, their creator and Lord. The highest of angels are under his rule, and he is preeminent above all angels. Therefore, if Christ is God and God alone is to be worshiped, Worshiping his creation, worshiping angels, worshiping ourselves, worshiping anything else, it's futility and idolatry. This applies now as it did to the Colossians. If you are worshiping anything other than the one true and triune God as he has been revealed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your worship is in vain. This is why all those groups I listed earlier, the Muslims, the Mormons, the non-Trinitarian churches and worship, though they claim some place for Christ, they're false churches carrying out false worship. They worship the creature instead of the creator. They worship lies. They're dead in their sins. But in verse 17, we see that the Son was before all. He was in the beginning, But he did not begin in the beginning. The ancient Arian heresy I mentioned before that prompted the Council of Nicaea in that creed that I read from earlier. It was from Arius and among other things his statement that there was once, so there was a time, when he, the son, was not. In other words, Jesus came later. Jesus was created by the Father at some later point. But what our text here and other texts tell us is that Jesus has, the Son has, always been and always will be. In fact, he is outside of and transcends the very category of time. He is eternal, He is before all things, before anything that was created, was created, before creation itself. And in fact, the Son is creator. And not only is he the eternal creator of all, he is the sustainer and preserver of all things. We read here also in our text that in him all things consist. In the Son, all things continue and hold together. We have a name for this. This is the doctrine of providence, God's all-encompassing and preserving rule over all things. Christ's preeminence as God, the Lord, maker, and ruler of all, extends especially to his church. He rules over all things, but he rules over his church in a particular and special way, and we see this in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, the head is the most important part of the body. It's where the brain is, which dictates how the rest of the body is going to function. It is the part that rules over the rest of the body. Now, the rest of us, as Christians, we are other parts of the body, the lesser important parts, the parts that are ruled over by our head. The body is not steered by its toes. We should not worship the toes. The body is not steered by its fingers or its spleen. We should not worship those. But the body is inseparably joined to and ruled by its head. And we, as members of the body, are to worship our head and submit to him alone. Now, Christ is not only the firstborn of all things, but as we see in the end of verse 18, he is the firstborn of the dead. So as if it were not enough, that the Son created and sustains and rules over everything, he also entered into his creation and conquered death in his resurrection. No one else that the Colossian heretics might have been worshiping or honoring could say that. Christ is not only Lord, he is Lord twice over. First by his creation and rule of all things, and then by his resurrection. (laughs) And he receives for both the titles of the beginning and the firstborn. Christ is preeminent over all. He is the ruler over all things, all creation, the church, and the world. His power and authority is indisputable. So why then would anyone worship anyone or anything else? But having seen in our first point, Christ's preeminence dealing largely with matters of the Son's being and his authority and position, we now turn to our second point, Christ's peace, in verses 19 and 20. Now we see here in verse 19, perhaps one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture of Christ's deity, of Jesus being God, in him all the fullness should dwell. In fact, it's actually stated again similarly in chapter 2 and more clearly clearly, the fullness of deity. Now, this word for fullness was probably a word that was being used in some technical sense by the Quassian heretics. It was commonly associated with early church heresies. Uh, for instance, Gnosticism believed in this fullness of spirits or gods or powers to be worshipped. For some systems, this fullness, the word in the Greek is pleroma served some sort of mediating role. All communication with the divine had to pass through them. They were basically the middlemen between the material creation, which they would often view as evil, and the spiritual God who is viewed as perfect and infinite. But Paul rejects this whole construct. There are no lesser spirits or lesser beings that mediate between us and Christ. The fullness of God, the essence of God, dwells in Christ. He lacks nothing and needs nothing, and we need nothing else to access him. Furthermore, there is no place for anything else to mediate for us or to be worshipped by us, because as we see in verse 20, God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself, not through anyone else, but in the Son. See, God created this world good. He created us good. In the words of our confession, he created man in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. He created man to have fellowship with him. The confession goes on to say that our first parents received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God. And yet, in the fall, sin entered into creation. Not only has mankind fallen into sin, but a curse has been placed on the earth. Work has become harder and less fruitful. <clears throat> Thorns and thistles come. Joyous occasions like childbearing become painful and dangerous. Creation groans for its ultimate reconciliation with God. Now this reconciliation is not going to be fully realized until the new heavens and the new earth, where the curse is finally removed. And yet in a real way, through Christ's work, this creation is even now being reconciled to God. What does it mean to be reconciled? Reconciliation indicates a Previous state of enmity, of hostility. This fallen world is hostile to God. It hates Christ. It put Christ to death and persecutes and kills his people. And yet by Christ's death, the blood of his cross, this reconciliation project is underway of turning creation back to its maker. Now this is most evidence in the salvation of God's people. This morning in verses 13 and 14, we read about how we were rescued, how we were delivered and transferred. We were conveyed into redemption in Christ. Well, here we see another of Christ's works for us. This reconciliation, this removing of enmity between us and God. Now, some would argue here that because Paul writes of Christ reconciling all things, that what is in view here is universalism the belief that everyone and everything, even fallen angels and unrepentant sinners, will eventually, somehow, some way, be reconciled to God. That eventually hell is going to end up empty. That's not what this text is teaching. It doesn't fit the rest of the New Testament's teaching about the fate of rebellious sinners. It doesn't even fit the rest of Colossians. You can look, for instance, at Colossians 2.15. It says there the rulers and authorities are being put to open shame by Christ triumphing over them. That's not reconciliation. There is clearly then some that are not going to be reconciled to God. This reconciliation is primarily dealing with Christ's saving work of his people in this age and the impacts that this has on the world. The gospel goes forth, and people go forth as salt and light. And in an already sense, creation is reconciled. But being already, this is incomplete. See, as the gospel goes forth, resistance grows too. Sin remains, death persists. Enemies of Christ persecute him and his church. And so the ultimate, final reconciliation doesn't come until the age to come. Now verse 21 in the first part of 22 personalize this work of reconciliation. It says, and you. So he addresses this specifically to the Caucasian Christians and through them to us who once were alienated and enemies in your mind. So this is the enmity between us and God that existed. This hostility was manifest in sin, in doing evil deeds. This is the bad news. This was the state of all of us without Christ. We were enemies of God, alienated and separated from him. But here we see the good news. He has reconciled, In the body of his flesh through death. Christ had to suffer and die to accomplish this reconciliation. In order to deliver us from our sins, a penalty had to be paid. But not only was the penalty paid, there had to be a sufficient power to transform our hearts and minds and deliver us from a state of enmity and hostility to God and instead reorient us towards friendship and peace. We don't just need forgiveness. We need renewal. We need resurrection of our own. Now, if one wants to see an example of the power of this reconciliation, look no further than Paul himself, the writer of this book. What was Paul doing before Christ reconciled him? He was persecuting the church. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was the man who held the jackets of the man who stoned Stephen to death for his gospel witness in Acts 7. He was on his way up to Damascus to arrest and persecute more Christians in Acts 9 when, in a flash of light, Christ reconciled Paul to himself. This isn't a kind of change that just happens by natural persuasion. Persecutors don't become preachers. Foes don't become friends. Murderers don't become ministers. And yet by this supernatural spirit-wrought power of reconciliation, even the most vile of sinner can be reconciled to Christ by the blood of his cross. Christ died so that Paul, the murderer, might live. He died so that all of his people, hostile as they were before, might live. This is the good news of the gospel. And yet, this is not the end of the story. Having looked at Christ's preeminence and his peace, we now turn to our third and final point, Christ's presentation. Christ does not merely reconcile us to himself for the sake of our salvation. Sure, our salvation is Very important. This is a major aspect of it. But this reconciliation is done for a purpose. We see this at the end of verse 22. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now some here would say that as a result of this reconciliation, this means that we are on our own initiative to be holy and blameless. Now it is true that in Christ we have a new Lord, we have a new Master, and we love Him and desire to do what is pleasing to Him. We obey in thankfulness for what He has done. But that's not really what Paul was describing here, this being good on our own initiative. What does it mean to be holy and blameless? It means to be perfect. Are we ever completely perfect in this life? No. Even in Christ, as we are Christians, we find ourselves inclined towards evil. We can only be holy and righteous and presented as such because of the perfect righteousness of Christ that is imputed and credited to us. Christ makes us holy and makes us blameless and presents us as such. He gets us there. He stands us up in his presence as righteous. Now in verse 23, we see what might at first glance look like a catch. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now again, the temptation here might be to look at and trust in our own strength and initiative. But again, that's not what's going on here. What does Paul say that we are to continue in? We are to continue in faith. Where does faith come from? It comes from God. It is worked in us by the Holy Spirit, uniting us to Christ and giving us all the benefits of salvation. This faith has an object, Christ and his gospel. So the power to believe is given to us by the Holy Spirit, and the power to persevere is also given to those who truly belong to Christ. Now this does not mean that our faith is alone that we do not strive against sin and the flesh in this life, that we do not struggle with doubts and temptations, but we recognize that God is faithful to complete the work that he has begun in us. God, by his grace, enables us to strive for life, and he will not lose any of his own. Those whom God has called will persevere to the end. Now, this doesn't mean the road is easy. We will still face sins and temptations in this life. We will be tempted to turn aside from the gospel. We may see others who do turn aside from this gospel, who go out from us because they were not of us. And yet those whom Christ saves, he saves to the uttermost. Now, Paul, writing against this Colossian heresy, he wants to be clear But to follow this false teaching is to reject the gospel. The one particular gospel that Paul says has been proclaimed in all creation. Now Paul is writing from Rome. He's writing from the center of the known world at the time. The gospel has come there and it is going from there all over the world. It found its way to Colossae through Epaphras as we talked about this morning. And those who cling to this gospel and no other gospel until the very end will be saved. They do so because God has granted to them to do so. Those who turn aside, turn aside because they never had true faith. I mentioned 1 John 2.19, describing Antichrist, those who are Antichrist against Christ and leading others astray. They're those who went out from us, but they were not of us. With false teaching, like the Colossian heresy or whatever false teaching we see in our day, comes apostasy. And it is a painful thing to see someone who appears to be a Christian, appears to be grounded in the true faith, be swept away by false teaching. As a house built on the sand collapses with the first wave. Now, Paul is not telling them this, though, to scare them into believing that they will lose their salvation but rather to exhort them to hold to their salvation and the true gospel with every fiber of their being. The speculations and idolatries of the Colossian heresy won't save anyone. All the other belief systems I mentioned earlier that have some place for Jesus, but treat him as something less than God himself and creator and ruler of all will not save. Only the person and work of Christ, as revealed to us in the Scriptures, only his gospel can save. And to reject this salvation is certain death. So hold fast to Christ, believe in Christ, trust in Christ, and live forever. And those who do persevere to the end are presented before Christ as holy and blameless. They no longer belong to this world of sin and death. They no longer have any remaining sin and corruption. God is their God, and they are his people. This is the eternal hope and the eternal inheritance of the Christian. This is where the gospel is taking us. It is a work begun that God himself will bring to completion. So we have seen here tonight Christ's preeminence, His deity, his role as creator, his rule over all things. We have seen Christ's peace, the reconciliation accomplished through the gospel, and then finally, Christ's presentation of his people as holy and blameless and persevering to the end. There's a lot going on in this text. It challenges us on multiple fronts. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Is he just a good man, a moral teacher, a prophet, something like that? Friend, if that is all you believe of Christ, you are dead in your sins, and the wrath of God rests upon you. Because Jesus Christ is very God of very God, and there is salvation in no other name under heaven. Have you been reconciled to Christ? Is His blood today covering your sins? Has the hostility between you and God been removed by the blood of His cross? This forgiveness and washing away of sins is a free gift to all who would repent and believe. And if you are in Christ tonight, remember where your faith is going. Remember the hope that you have and cling to it. Do not be turned aside by lies and false teachings. Believe in the gospel that Jesus taught, that Paul taught, that has been taught to you. And trust in God to carry you through this life, where in the end he will present you holy and blameless. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have heard. We thank you for the glories of your Son, He is the ruler and maker of all things. He is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the dead. And we thank you that he is our redeemer, who has reconciled us by the blood of his cross. I pray that all here who hear tonight would believe. I pray that your spirit would work this word in us. And I pray that in response to this glorious truth, that we would love you and love our neighbor as we ought. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.